Hi, Bo. She helps me. <laughs> okay. So good morning, everyone. Um, I've been doing a series of webinars with a lot of different people to get interesting perspectives on um, the horse and how it um, surefoot affects the horses. So today my guest is Martina Nierhardt from Switzerland. Um, I'm really excited to have her today and it fits beautifully with Rachel Bellini's talk last night where Rachel just started talking a little bit about tensegrity. So um, Martina, would you please just give us a brief introduction about your background and, and how you got here? Because we have people from all over and some people have never met you. Yeah, um, my name is Martina Nierhardt. I'm a veterinarian from Switzerland. I'm specialized in rehabilitation and manual therapy. Um, I graduated originally 2003, and since 2010, I'm more doing rehabilitation and, and stuff like that. Um, I got very interested. I started out with chiropractic and acupuncture, and then found that soft tissue is something that's very, very interested. Uh, I started then to learn more about taping with Sibyl Molle uh, from Italy uh, with the kinesio taping from Dr. Kaze, what also influences a lot of fascia. And um, I also found out that the feet have a big influence on how the horses can use their body. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up. And I'm always looking for new alternatives to help them and to learn more. And uh, this spring in February, I had the pleasure to go to one of your Surefoot seminars in, um, in Amsterdam. And Sybil's on the webinar, so she just said hi. Hi, Sybil. <laughs> All right. Okay, so what we're gonna do is, I'm gonna run the slideshow for Martina. <laughs> I'm a little more technically skilled here. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yep, no problem. And so I'll just go ahead and get started. I'm just gonna do a screen share. There we go. We'll pull it up here. I might just have to get it to start slideshow. Let's see. Mm -hmm. From start, there we go. So I'm gonna just start with a, simple um, overview over anatomy. The equimyofascial lines I'm gonna use for explanations here are the one from Rika Schultz and Wittke Elrond from Copenhagen. They um, presented that in a paper 2015. A lot of the newer research we have from about fascia is less than 10 years old, especially for horses the papers that come out and also the things that look about foot balance and body um, posture, they're around from 2010 upwards. The newest ones I'm going to mention are from last year. Um, next one, please. I just have to be on the right. So just a short um, introduction in weight distribution and biomechanics of horses. Um, on the left side, you see those two people that kind of like show how the body works um, from a power point of view. The front end of the horse is more made to carry weight and to pull, while the hind end is the powerhouse that helps to push. So the force is actually more coming out of the hind end than of the front end. 
What's interesting is that you see the two horses on the right. The weight distribution is the other way around. The front end of the horse has to carry more weight than the hind end. It's about 40, 60 uh, average. Next. Um, just here, a little comparison between humans and horses. Um, on the left side, you see the bones in the same color how they are. So you see our skeletons are more or less the same. But on the right side, you see the difference that's very big. The horses are just standing on one little toe, which makes it so much more important for them to be balanced because it's on such a tiny little um, weight point where actually everything needs to be balanced out. So balance for them is very, very essential as they don't have six, five toes to balance out and, um, and the palms they really, really are standing on their tiptoes, like a ballerina. Uh, here's a short overview. If you have time, you can go through that. That's just the thoracic sling of the front end where we have the carry mechanism because we don't have bones connecting. What I really like about is on the left side, you see very well how we have a deep layer in the center. This is gonna be our deep fascia lines and how we have an outer layer of muscles on the outside. These are gonna be our superficial um, fascia lines. And you see, they're very well separated. Um, if you just see on the right side, it's just showing you how this carrying uh, apparatus works with the most important muscle there in red that looks like a wing. This is the serratus. This connects the shoulder to the thorax and prevents a sinking down. And then we have spinalis and, um, and trapezius part of it that help to carry up. Okay, here is a short um, transegrity picture as we already heard about that yesterday, how the forces interact and are spongy. We have in the hind end, we have the stay apparatus, same as in the front end. And you see the most important muscles there are semitendinosus, semimembranosus, and quadriceps and gluteal at the top, going down into all the tendons and ligaments we have down holding up the foot. And in the front end, it's mainly um, triceps, biceps, and, and all the extensor and flexor muscles, and then, from the thorax, like bow and string, that holding up, we have the spine and the longissimus and abdominal muscles. And inside the deep ventral line with the diaphragm that you can see here around the thorax that helps actually carry. It has a very important function in carrying. It's not just for breathing. The diaphragm has two pillars, that mean two big muscular, um, like tubes on the side that help with carrying. They are not made for breathing. The diaphragm is also very important for carrying the body. And then you have the serratus in front, the nuchal ligament, um, and, in, and the neck muscles at the bottom and at the top. So, so everything is connected. It's kind of like spongy. Here we have a lovely picture of a uh, few muscle fibers and the white tissue around it that you see, it looks like a little bit like a um, foam 
This is actually fascia. On the left side, it looks like a little spider leg. Can you see that, Wendy? Here, here. Yeah. Okay. yeah. This is a nerve. So you see how the nerve runs in between fascia and then just mm -hmm. goes into the muscles. It needs to be able to slide. And the main function of fascia is carrying and sliding. The, she is surrounding and connecting everything. Fascia is like the big pattern that helps to connect and be everything. It runs, it is, it follows tension. Wherever tension is, there will be fascia. Um, because also inside the bones, the trabecula that we have, fascia goes inside the bones and helps the bone to realize where the tension goes and all the little trabeculas inside the bone are built up on fascia tension, built around it. And then it comes out and then there are, there it is like ligaments or tendons and then it goes into those little sacs around the muscles because the muscles are inside that and then it stretches on. So it is so responsible fascia for the inside bone? Yes, it goes through that and also helps the bones to build up their matrix. It is everywhere. So are you familiar with the recent research that talks about how bones trigger the flight reflex? No, I'm sorry about that. Okay, I'll send you the paper. Um, it's really yes. interesting and they're talking about how in adrenally optimized mice and people that have compromised adrenal glands that they can still experience the flight reflex because of oxyocalcin released from the bones and the glutamate response. But I'm wondering if it isn't the fascia that's inside the bones that's triggering that response, given what you just said. I mean, it's the tension that helps them to build up. Like for example, everybody knows that when you wear high heels within 14 days, I think, don't get me, quote me on yeah. that, but it's a very short time. The bones, the bone structure inside your femur is gonna change and adapt to your changed stance so that the power forces are again, ideally uh, transmitted through the bones. That's why we have the osteoblasts and osteoclasts. They're uh, continuously adapting the inside architecture of the bones. And this is done over tension and that's done with fascia inside. Wow. Um, it really, really, Oops. Can she say that again about start and finish point? That was so fast I couldn't see that. Uh, there was a question about start and finish point. fascia connect or start and finish at points? No, it is continuous. It is like that octaeder, like that tensegrity um, model you have in there. There is no end and there is no beginning. It is just changing shape. And like here in tensegrity, you see um, in that model, you see those wooden sticks. Yep. They're part of it. They're the bony part, but they're also giving over the tension and the tension runs through them. And then you have the more soft tissue parts. And then you have the joints that are also, the joint capsule are also part of fascia. Everything that is connective tissue and those connective tissue fibers we have that are the, that's why bone is built up out of cartilage. 
if you look at the fetus in the beginning, it is just cartilage and then it starts to ossify and then you get the bone buildup on that. So when, when in the, in the um, blastomere or in, in what stage do we start to see fascia in the developing embryo? The moment you have the egg, it's already there. Oh, oh, oh. It's already there because if you have one cell, you have a little liner around it that is already fascia. So the moment you have glomeruli and blastocytes and everything, that is already fascia that is there. It is the first thing that's developed um, to help, how do I say that? To have a living creature on earth. In, in very early um, bacteria, like they had just one cell, they know how to eat, they know how to move, and they know how to multiply, and they don't have a nervous system. So it is done by the fascia. The fascia acts as a nervous system, and it's the first thing to develop, even before our neural, our nerve cells and everything. It is the first thing that is there. Wow. Okay. It needs to move freely in the body because it has nice guiding motion. These are beautiful pictures from Dr. Gamberto. He's a French researcher um, who started to um, research fascia a little bit more in detail. There is an absolutely stunning film that's called Strolling Under the Skin. You see that on the left side of the picture where they put like those micro cameras under the skin and moved the skin on top. And this is how you see how it moves. You see, it's a tiny little net. What you see on the right side, like the white stuff around the stake you have, this is, if you look at, under it under the microscope, is, is hundreds of little nets connecting and sliding against each other. Um, it is everywhere in the body. Every tendon, ligament, and bone is part of this big net. Every muscle, organ, gland, vessel, and nerve is surrounded by it. So fascia is really responsible for the production and enhancement and the storage of the forces. That means if, like, for example, kangaroo is a great example. They just, they can't, they produce the force to jump. Part of it, over 40% comes out of their tendon. It's not from the muscle. It gets stored for every jump they do. Same goes for horses. That's why trot for them is um, energy saving modus. They, they need less energy to move in trot than they use in walk, especially if they do sidewalk. If you do 15 minutes work with a horse, on side passes, you use the same amount of energy than when you trot 30 minutes straight. So you use double the amount of energy at walk while you do side passing and engage all the core muscles than when you just trot straight. Yeah. And there is like two fascia layers. There is the superficial, like we've seen before, um, on the um, cut through the thorax. These is, are usually made out of more elastic fibers. And then we have the deep layers because they're uh, important for rigidity and they're also uh, important 
for innovation. In the deep layers, we usually have more nerve endings, so even more um, information going into the brain. Um, also, the muscles nearer to the core, means to the spine, have more nerve endings in there than the ones, um, for, for example, at the legs. The only exception is the hoof in the horse. The lamina of the hoof in the horse have a lot, lot, lot of receptors in there. Another thing about fascia that's really important to know, fascia contains 90% of all free nerve endings. Free nerve endings are mainly responsible for the proprioception. That means where the body is in space. So it gives the body information. And some of them work also for pain receptors, some for heat, like light pressure or deep pressure. So it's, it's, an, it's like collecting information. If fascia is under tension, then we get a so-called bastardized input into our neural system. Science at the moment does not know how the nerve endings from being um, proprioceptors change into nociceptors. That means from telling the body where it is in space, it changes into pain. Pain inf information gets on. The higher the pressure, pressure on the fascia, the more likely is that it, that it signals the body, I am in pain. Can we go to the next one? Um, these here are dissection pictures from Ivana Rudok. Um, uh, I found it intriguing to see when here's the, on the right side, the first layer is off. So the gluteus uh, superficialis is missing. But what you can see is those broad fascia aponeurosis that we have all over the body. Here's so all one this of the here, more superficial. Inside my pointer, I can show them. Yes, so you can see these are very dense, but still very thin, but very, very dense and strong connections that combine and connect all those muscles. And this is very, very important because it changes the forces of muscle. And I have, I talk about that a little later because the longer your attachment is, the more force you have because it changes your levers. Here you can see very well, um, in most anatomy books you learn, okay, your muscle has an origin and an insertion. Um, that is just partly correct. Uh, and especially for some muscles, like for example, tensor fasciolata that we see here, they even have to tell that is attaching into another fascia. They can't really tell you where on the bone it attaches because it doesn't. For example, in humans, our biceps attaches with over 40% onto fascia and, and lower down on our lower arm and not like it says on the bone. But that is very important because it gives it a 40% longer lever and it makes it stronger because we can move and have strength in with our biceps that the muscle alone cannot achieve. It is the fascia that makes the muscle strong. Okay. So here's just one comparison. Um, the left side is um, from Myers. He did a lot of research in humans 
He says there's like 10 big fascia lines. I just picked out one. This is the superficial dorsal line in humans. And on the right side is the same that we have in horses. Um, they're more or less equal. The only thing is the function changed a little bit from those lines because the horse is quadruped. That means the axis around if they bend or if they stretch is different than when we do because we stand on two feet and have a different orientation than when you stand on four feet. Yes, it follows the blood and meridian. And that was something that Elrond and Schultz were very intrigued with because um, Wipke does also a lot of acupuncture, one of the vets who did that research. And they found out that a lot of the acupuncture points, they actually correspond with meridian, um, with the fascia lines. And some of the points you can actually see nearly all of them when you put the needles in or where you go, you find them and they pull down deep, deep, like into the spine. Even when you have like um, points on the uh, gluteal muscles, like for example, from the bladder marine 37, um, 30, 36, 37, 38, 39, around there, you can see how they pull into it where the sciatic nerve goes. So this is really, there is a connection and fascia might be the explanation. Next one, please. Yep. We just, let me just check the questions here. Um, oh, sorry. I just, I didn't see all of them. That's okay. That's fine. It's kind of hard to keep track of everything. So um, someone asked, uh, after an accident or surgery, where it is, where it's separated, I'm assuming the fascia, does it reconnect? Yes, it always reconnects. The problem is, um, it's not the reconnection with fascia. The problem is the movement. Like I said earlier before, fascia needs to move. If fascia doesn't move for one reason or the other, that can be an inflammation somewhere. That can be that you got hit and have a hematoma. That can be compensation due to a bad posture. Fascia tries to stabilize. So first, it develops densification. That means it gets kind of like a little sticky because if it's always under tension, it wants to get a little bigger. Um, if that's not enough, and these ones can just buy a good rub or if you do your, um, like for example, blood and meridian, Masterson method or, or a slight movement stretch, this can be released by that. That's also something that you can do with the pads. This can be released. If we have, bigger insult to the fascia, you have fibrinogen um, coming out of the tissue. This is the glue of the body. Um, everybody has seen that. When you have a cut on your arm or somewhere, that is not deep enough to bleed, but you have that yellow stuff that comes out. This is fibrinogen. And this is kind of glue that holds it together. And the same happens when you have an internal injury. And it really, it's hard, it's glued together. And then you have a scar formation. And if you have a scar formation, that is really, really hard to break up. And the only way to do it is manual therapy. There is studies in Newman, and Tulia Luomala and Mika Pilman from Finland are working on that. Um, and they proved that in humans, if you have these scar um, tissues, or deeper densifications, the only way to break them up is manual therapy. You can use ultrasound, you can use 
um, laser everything. It makes it more elastic, but it doesn't break it up. So the only way to solve that is manual therapy. So is, what is scar tissue then in the, is in the continuum of um, fascia and... And yes, it's, it's just unorganized fascia. As you've seen all, on those pictures, fascia is always very organized when it's built on, with tension and when it's built, it's built to slide and to, to move. Scar tissue isn't. And that's why you often feel like a stop when you touch it and you have, it doesn't move. Right. Yeah, I have I have a significant scar, so I understand that. Yes, and you can you can understand that it gives you compensation somewhere in the body, and sometimes it hurts. Yeah. So massaging it helps. Cool. Okay. So these are the equine fascia lines, or most of them are on here. Yeah, you can also have emotional scars, and stress can cause um also compensation in your body and doing the same like Sybil um, shortly mentioned. So, yes, so we have so, um, um, Martina when you answer a question just yeah. just repeat just read the question because um, I'm not always, I don't always have the chat where I can see Yeah Sybil Mollet just said that in humans it's also proven that mental stress is causing those densifications. So if you have um stress or if you are afraid if you are in pain your body kind of like builds up compensation and you get densification and things like that in your fascia line that's why you also can tape for mental problems for stress for example you can put on a stress tapes these are very light and soft and very fine and work just superficial, but go very, very deeply. And that's kind of like the same technique as Jim Masterson uses with his uh, bladder meridian, or also when they have like really like the touch but don't touch, where you just use the um, energy, the infrared that comes out of your fingers. Air gap, yeah, it's called air gap, thank you. Um, when you really, really have to focus on very tiny points and very little, and this can help with mental trauma. So someone's asking in your image here um, what the dashed lines mean. This is just on the backside because oh. that's the nasty thing about those lines. They're not just on one side, they crisscross over. I try to explain them to you. So we have the superficial ventral line that starts on the hind limb. I, I think it is the light blue colored. Yep. Yep. It starts on the hind limb. It goes up into the loin, loin area, groin. How do you call that? Groin. Sorry. Yep. English. Yeah, up there. And then follows the ventral. Yeah, goes up around the bracketa phallicus and ends up here on the head and neck. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Then we have the superficial dorsal line. That's the other blue one. But it starts at the hind end of the foot. Again on P3. All of those, you see, they start down at the foot. Then it follows up here over the hock, semitendinosus, semimembranosus, gluteus, longissimus, spinalis, 
nog een ligament en het touches op at the neck en goes actually forward into the temporal muscle and we had end again about there. Does it also come down the front leg? No. Okay, that's somebody else. Yes, that's somebody else. It just, just goes up to the head. So it combines the hind end to the neck. So if you have a problem at the back, you always have a problem at the front and vice versa because it's connected. And not just with, with bones, but also with fascia. Then we have the superficial, deep and lateral lines. This is the yellow that's crisscrossing on the side. Yeah, it goes up and then goes down, up, down, and then follows up the neck. Yeah. And then there's oh, the other one. Yeah. And what is part, yeah, what's part of that one, the superficial line is the musculus cutaneus trunchi. Like a lot of anatomy books tell you that this muscle is just responsible um, to move away flies. But do you really think the horse needs an over two centimeter thick muscle to move skin for flies? Not really. Um, Wittke and, uh, um, demonstrated that this muscle is to stabilize the body on a bend line. One of them is responsible when the head is up, the superficial one. The other one is responsible when the head is down. That's the deep in a lateral bend. So when you lunge your horse, they have to turn their thorax cutaneus trunchi is the name of the muscle. That's the so-called skin muscle. You, in, in very well-trained horses, you can see it sometimes from the side. It looks like a patch on their side. It's thicker around the girth area and the thorax area and thins out towards the back. Um, and it helps with stabilizing the trunk so that when they are bent, that the feet still come down straight and not overusing the ligaments and tendons. If this muscle is too weak and you lunge your horse too fast and they, they lean into the, the bend instead of turn the thorax and then bend, what would be correct for them? This is when you get um, popped splints because the forces don't come down um, perpendicular to the ground. So then we have the spiral line. That's a very complicated one Which because color? it crisscrosses over several times. It starts. What color? Um, that is the green. Okay, got it. The light green. It starts at the neck on the left side. Okay. Just for example, that's the left line I'm explaining you. Then it crosses over at the withers to the other side. And then it goes down onto the belly. No, nope, down, 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 down. down. Yep. Yeah. And then it comes up again into the groin area. So it crosses again to the other side. Now it's again on my side. It comes down. No, nope, on, oh. the, on the front. Yeah, it comes down here. Knee goes around the hock, comes up again. And then it crosses again onto the other side here on the line and follows around the, the back onto the neck of the other side. Wow. They're very complicated. Cross, that's the comp most complicated line we have. It crisscrosses three times. But this is the line you need when you're galloping. This is the power line that helps the horse 
to do the gallop. Because that is when one hind leg is leading, the contralateral hind leg is leading with the front leg. So if you're doing a left gallop, the right hind is carrying. If you do a right gallop, the left um, one is, is, is leading. So then we have the functional line. This is the, oh, this is the light blue. You just see two fine lines. Yes, this one. It starts there, crosses over, comes down on the other hind, around the kneecap, goes into the groin area, comes up and crosses over again under the belly and ends up again in the elbow pit of the left front. Okay, I lost it. I, I've got it here. At yep, the here elbow. you go up, cross yep. over, yep. down around the knee. Yep. From the outside, no, from the outside, and then you come up again into the loin area. So we're in the middle again, and then you curl cross again to the arm of the left armpit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so wow. this one crosses too, but it crosses in the diagonal. And this is the one that's responsible for trap or diagonal movement. Oh, sorry, trot is the English word. Yeah. Sorry, for trot or diagonal movement. Um, this is also one when this one is um, contracted. If you lift your horse's left front, he has to lift the right hind. Oh. You see that often also horses standing on pads. Yes. Or when the farrier gets them up on the foot stand. We're not yes. going into why it is contracted, because there can be hundred reasons for that too. But this is the connection that makes them do that. Okay. Uh, for humans, um, if you ever see somebody who's throwing spears, then when they pull up like that and you see the muscles of those athletes going in a diagonal, this is exactly that line. I'm sorry, I have my fingers in front of everything. That's okay, do it again. Then we have the two front limb lines. The, what is that? The pink one in the front, that's the so-called protraction line. You can see it starts again down at the foot, yep. at the dorsal part, comes up around the shoulder joint, it splits up. Part of it follows the shoulder blade um, with this on the supraspinatus, and the other one goes up the lower part of the bracket cephalicus and attaches up at the skin. So it attaches on two points. We have it here on the withers, and we have it up at the neck. And that is responsible to get the leg forward. This is the forward motion of the leg, when these lines connect, contract. All the muscle in that line are responsible to get the leg forward and to get the head back down. The retraction line, that's the deep purple one in the back. Um, no, in the, uh, at the back of the front foot, I'm sorry, Wendy. Yeah, this one comes up there around the elbow and then under over the shoulder and there it splits up part of it goes back into the saddle area where we have the saddle and the other one follows up the neck and attaches there so if we have a foot balance problem in the front you always get tension up there so it's not always the saddle that's causing those problems. It can also be foot problems when you see that. These horses often don't like when you brush their neck. 
or when you brush their area of the saddle and they can have a perfectly fitting saddle but they're still going to be sensitive due to the tension in that fascia line because what i said earlier fascia when it's under tension tells you it's in pain even when it's not wow okay the lines that i'm missing here is the deep ventral line that goes in three layers it comes up like the the superficial ventral line sorry i don't have them here obviously it's the old okay. one then i just explained it comes up it and then it follows one is the deep layer of the muscles on the outside of the thorax and then on the inside of the thorax you have the diaphragm as part of one and you have the lining and the muscles under the spine that go forward and it it embraces everything um, inside all the organs and the fascia lines that come from there are inside the deep ventral fascia layer and then we have uh, the deep dorsal line missing this follows exactly the same as the superficial dorsal line just a little bit deeper and it really attaches to the uh, spine and it also has connections directly to the dura mater that means we, we have um i couldn't see that question um hang on I'll something about hock arthritis uh yeah often hock arthritis shows up in the back sore tight and fascia line yes and often hock arthritis develops because they have not such a very well balanced foot over time, there is like the research coming out now that when you have a bad foot balance in the hind, like a negative palmar angle or long toes, negative plantar angle, long toes, um, you get sore hocks, you get sore stifles, you get pain in the gluteal, and you get pain in the loin area and SI. And that's all proven. Wow. So, next one. Okay, hang on. Let me just. That should be our deep line, so you have to go two. Okay. Okay, this is, now I'm just gonna talk because we're a little bit like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, here you see again on the left side, this is from the farrier um, Yogi Sharp in the UK. He made that nice picture and allowed me to use it. Um, this is where you see the deep, um, the, the deep and the superficial dorsal line go over in the horse and the fascia connection that you have there. One's from the back, so it shows you where it starts at the foot, goes up. And you often see horses with foot problems and they, those are the ones who really, really well benefit from your um, pads. They have a hypertrophy of semitendinosus, semimembranosus and the side and also the gluteal and top because they have to pull, they have to pull up the whole time holding against the tension from the leg. And then you have, but these horses often show a very little developed biceps, femoris and quadriceps and even not enough tension in those. So next one, we had already the bow and string. This is what I told you before. Um, fascia expands the lever arm of muscles and it's not a rarity that it's up to 40 percent here it's a these are pictures from uh, from the book from Tulia 
uh, Luomala and Mika Pilman from Finland that also do a lot of research in that. And this is how you see sorry. how it's... Sorry, well, my pointer... No problem. How up. you see um, how the fascia goes on. And here it's also something that's really important to know. You get center of fusions. Center of fusions means where a lot of those fascia lines run together. They don't have to be in a muscle. It's just where those force lines meet from all those fascia lines. And there you often get densifications. That means because the forces kind of like accumulate there, the tension in the fascia is also greater. And then it starts to get a little dense. So it's not gliding as good as it should. Um, and um, Becky has a very, very nice saying when she's teaching that says, whenever you are, you're everywhere else. So that means it's moving everywhere. And the problem, the, ori the origin of the problem is often not where you see the actual pain. It's a consequent, uh, consequence of a problem somewhere, but it's usually not the origin where you see the problem. Except the only exception is blunt trauma. When you had acute trauma on there or something like that, then it's, it's the same. But usually it's not. Um, yeah. Okay. Here is, uh, again, a picture from Vipka, where you can see this is just the slide under the microscope, so you can see the fascia. <laughs> it's, it's like when I try to get my pointer to not go somewhere. Oh, no. <laughs> um, you see, it runs through everything. That connective tissue, everything that's blue here um, from the coloring is um, connective tissue. So all those little blue dots that you see are connective tissue. And even when you look at the blob on the left side, and can you see that? It looks like a round, bluish, reddish blob. Yeah, that one. Oh, this, one? this is a nerve. You oh, can okay. see that even the nerve bundles are surrounded and coated with fascia. And you can also see how it is embedded in a circle of fascia because nerves absolutely need to glide. Nerves can't stretch. If you stretch a nerve more than 2%, it's going to rupture. What fascia can stretch over 200 percent so what the body has done is he makes the nerves very long and places them in between fascia layers in an s shape like a little river meandering through through the landscape if the body is now stretching all that happens is the the nerves um, elongates by stretching instead of being in an s shape and when the body contracts again, the tissue, the nerve goes back into the S shape because it's not elastic. That's why it's so important, it needs to glide. And that's why you get sciatic pain when you have a scar and you can't stretch your leg. And that's why massage helps because you're breaking up those densifications in the fascia. Um, yeah. So like we had that it's, yeah, fascial tension, but it's not just the tension, it's the actual adhesions. Yes, the fascia, Becky said it very nicely. It's the fascia sleeve that allows the vessels and also the nerves to move. 
Without that, it can't. Okay, just let me know when you're, when, just repeat the question because sometimes I think you're talking about another slide. So when you're answering a question, just repeat the question before you answer. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Makes my life easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just about that the nurse have to glide. It's also one of the points I put down here. Fashion is responsible for nerves to glide. It's very elastic. We talked about the free nerve sending that are in there and about also the corrupted neurological input that we get due to the tension. So Dr. Bowker, in one of his lectures, one of his Zoom meetings I did with him, he talked about the um, nerves uh, looking like tangles in the foot. So yeah. Um, and so he has, um, he has slides where you can see these nerve tangles and they look kind of like a ball of yarn all kind of wadded up. Um, yeah. That's so that the nerves can uh, lengthen when there's a change in the tension in the foot? Yes. Cool. Yes. So because like the hoof capsule is very movable, if you see how much it can um, move and also when you have like displacement of the cartilages or if you see how much bar barefoot hoof moves that is quite some movement that is like up to an inch an inch and a half that that actually can move so but nerves don't stretch and you have a lot of nerves and nerve endings in the foot so you actually need that for the movement and that's why they call together and then stretch and call together again cool. Also in the foot, very important. Good? So this is just a little overview from you from the outside because I see that so regularly that there is something wrong and we don't recognize it and the horses try to tell us with the posture. Um, I know you can't always have x-rays, but to know if there is a negative palmar angle in the hind, there's a very easy way. And you can just follow the trajectory of the coronet. So if it goes towards the carpus, like the green one, you have green light, that means we have a positive uh, plantar angle in the hind and everything is fine. If you have the coronet trajectory going towards the elbow, that's already when we get an orange sign because that usually indicates we have a neutral angle and there is some research out telling us like everything under two degrees and lower um, puts already stress on the tissues and on the foot itself. If we have the trajectory of the coronet going towards the belly, and unfortunately you will see that quite often once you start to look for it, this means we have a negative plantar angle in the hind. I can guarantee you that without x-ray. If it goes up to the belly, it is not correct and put stress on the uh, part of the back. And that's what a lot of research going on. It can be that you just have too long toes and underrun heels, or it can be that you have a true negative palmar angle. But it's very easy to see from the outside. Another thing you see, horses who have a negative plantar angle, again, one of Yogi's pictures on the right, see when you have a line from the tuber um, ishi uh, down it should hit the hock and then oh. the cannon bone should be perpendicular oh. we're, in the, we're on the right hand picture right green line the red line red line got it 
yes. When you follow that one down, you should it should hit the hock and then should be um, parallel with the cannon bone and go and just leave at the hock. When you look at this horse, you see this horse has kind of like it's slightly standing under. So this is already getting low, but that's end of cycle. And the toes are a little long with the one trim that was good again. I know that now because I know it from Yogi. So um, the other so the thing yellow is- yellow line is his actual line and it should be at the red. And the blue line from yes. the cornet band is showing us that it's above the knee. That's, yeah, that's if you look at the one in the front, that's nice and straight. Yep. So it's just, do for shoeing. The shoeing interval is very, very important. And uh, th that means sometimes five weeks is already enough depending on how your horse is built. But everything that's over six weeks, the RVC and Renata Vello did research on it, that is too long. That's when you actually get changes in the foot, in the angles on the tissue. That is, that means, um, you have uh, you have so much tension on there that's the blood supply when you looked Volker's videos he shows you where the uh, in the digital cushion where you have those uh, vessels that help the the hoof to grow how these ones get compressed due to the changing angle over a shoeing period or a trimming period we have a change of angle between two and four degrees just because the toe hoof grows very grows faster than the heel sometimes there's like times when they change fur um that means the hoof is growing a little slower then you might have seven weeks eventually um that is just depending on how the hoof grows but the average five to six weeks is a cycle for a normal healthy horse if you have a laminitic horse it is even shorter because they grow faster at the wrong spots. So, Another thing, how to assess the static conformation is, if you look at the horse on the left, it looks like it's toe out, yeah. um, but that's man-made. If you lift up the leg, you see actually how the bony column is, and you see that our horse would actually be toed in. So this is again where the pads are gonna come in very handy because they help them to release tension because they can stand how they want. And I saw you had a very nice one um, for people to learn how to read the pads, yeah. what they show how the horse is load one side more than the other to relieve tension. That is exactly what they're doing because sometimes a trim or a, or a shoeing job forces them to stand against their bony column. And this is gonna put tension on the whole fascia system because we have seen all the fascia starts at the, at the feet or is, starts at the hock and at the elbow. But the feet are actually connected to everything up there. And if I have tension in one line, I'm gonna get tension in all the lines because they're connected. Next one. Here is another one. If you look at the picture in the middle, this horse looks toed out. If we lift up the legs, the left one not so much. You can see like from the fetlock down on the right side, this is how the fairy looks. He is pretty straight, so it's not too bad. 
but it's still not definitely not toed out. It would be slightly toed in. On the right foot, on the left side, you see how it's pretty much toed in, especially from the fetlock down. Yeah. This horse, and it's standing straight, so on this side, he should be toed in, and the toed out foot should be straight. And this is putting tension on the whole body. He was very, very sore in his saddle area, right behind the shoulders. Next one. That's the same pony. It doesn't get better. This is his left hind. If you look, if we start on the left side, if we look at it from the front, you see that the coronet band is not parallel to the ground. Yeah, you can see how it's high in the toe on the left side. Yes. Yes. If you look at it from the hind, you can see how it's very medially hind again also from the back. That means that the two middle pictures are just viewing down the leg from the hock straight down when the leg hangs. So you can see how the cartilage is medially displaced. That means, well, you talked about that the hoof has the ability to really, really, the hoof capsule can stretch quite a bit. And this one here is at its limit. That's why the horse starts to limp. What is very typical for that is when you look at the wear pattern on the shoe, you see how the outside, this is on the left, on the left. is very worn down. Yeah. Even the, the road pin that's in there is nearly flush. Oh, yeah. And you can see how the nails are re really flush with everything. And on the inside, the nail heads are even sticking out. So the horse is just landing on the outside. What he does is like, if you're like having a medially high heel on the inside is forcing the horse to land on the outside. Think about when you have a pebble in your, in your shoe, you're not landing on the pebble, you're landing on the outside. That's because he's high medially. And this puts a lot of tension on. We can go to the next one. So, and this brings me to how to assess the conformation and the movement. There's a lot of things you can do. Um, I like slow-mo videos, and I know you're planning something on how to assess dynamic conformation and movement and watching slow-mo videos. Yeah. Um, because it's so important. It tells you about the tension in the body, and that's also why you see so big changes when you have the horses on the paths because it changed the tension patterns in the body. Um, watch how the swing faces, are the horses interfering? Um, um, is it slower on one side to get the, the leg forwards or is it, is it um, faster on one side? How do they land outside, inside, toe, heel? When they stand, do they load equally? Or do they load mainly the outside? And then in the hind legs, you often see how the hock swings out during the movement. They always tell you it's a hock problem. It's not a hock problem, it's a foot balance problem because they can't load the foot equally. So they rotate out while they fully load the leg. They land on the outside and then they rotate out and they land on the diagonal. Often they put the foot under the medial line of the body because when they do that, the foot needs to be a little longer on the inside, so it's landing a little more balanced. But it pulls the whole body wrong. 
Um, then in walk, the walk tells you often more about the confirmation than the trot because trot, we learned, is energy saving and it's more fascia tension. Trot is very good for lameness um, evaluations, but not to see how the body's moving, how the muscles are moving, and how relaxed the horse actually is. You want to see the whole body swing. Um, the question was foot ringing. That's exactly lateral medial imbalance. That's what you say. One side is longer than the other, so the horse is not loading equally and landing equally, and when it loads, it turns the foot. Oops. This is exactly whoops, what happens. Um, um, so there's yeah, the torque course. during movement. This is due to um, imbalances. Um, and watch another point that um, Dennis, he's a farrier, a very good one, told me, you have to see how a horse naturally stops and then loads the feet. That tells you also something. Is it able to load the feet equally? That's something that you check often with the pads and that you see when you have fascia tension in the body, they are not able to load the feet equally. Um, because, because it pulls them uneven. And often that is due to foot imbalance problems. Um, so, just watching the horse move and stop. And this is why you see so big changes after the paths. But what are the paths doing? So um, I think, and research is also going there, that the paths are helping with releasing tension. We know from research now, and I'm sorry I don't have slides here because it somehow didn't upload, um, that the um that the fascia acts as a as a like a nervous system but it's much faster than the nerves fascia is three times faster than nerves giving information up to the brain and giving information on for the body and for reflexes because it fascia transmits information and tension with the speed of sound so 333 meters per second. Our fastest nerves are around 100 meters per second. So that's three times slower. And that might explain what you said about the bone releasing cortisol and getting a flight reaction. Because if you get that tension, it's three times faster than the nervous system to react. It always gives information up to the brain. So that would explain why it goes because bone is part of fascia. It's just enhanced. So um, we, somebody asked a question that if you allow the horse to balance their fascia standing on surefoot pads, but the farrier doesn't change the trim, are you going to take a step forward and two steps back? Um, I usually take a step forward and want to know why. Um, if you have discussions, if it's like correct for your horse or not, I always recommend get an x-ray done. If you have an x-ray, it's not lying. It tells you exactly how the angle are. It tells you what needs doing and, and where you need to change it because you wanna have 
a straight hoof past an angle. That means the alignment of P1, P2, P3 need to be in one line, like this. If you have that, this is a broken back hoof past an axis. It will put a lot of tension on here, like on every joint, and also on the deep digital flexor tendon and the superficial flexor tendon. They're gonna have more tension on them that they have to handle because they're under constant strain. And you compress the coughing joint at the top and you press the navicular bone into the coughing joint from the bottom. So you have compression on two. And that's also why you see those horses who are of a, a negative palmar angle, they stand under. And I had another vet asking me just last week, why do horses stand camped under when they're already overloading the back end of their foot? because that would make no sense. It would be better for them to stretch the leg out behind, right? But what happens is we have so much compression in the joints for the horses that is very uncomfortable when they have a broken back hoof pass an axis. They try to stretch it out. And if they would stand out more behind to relieve the tension, they would bend even more those three joints would put more stress on it because the attachment is already sore, where deep digital flexor tendon attaches on the uh, hoof bone. This is where, where it's already a lot of tension. And Boyker did some studies on there that a lot of navicular disease start on P3 and on the pull on the deep digital uh, um, flexor tendon and the compression and, and um, collapsing of the digital cushion. So to release the tension on the bones and on the tendons, they kind of like try to stretch out instead of going like that. So um, what Martina is referring to is Dr. Robert Bowker and I have four hours of webinar with Bob, two parts um, where you can learn an awful lot about the foot and, and what she's talking about with great slides. And so um, those are just great resources for you to go and watch. Yeah. Um, Martina, we've got a question, is there, are there any good resources to learn more about this and how to assess movement? Well, we're going to do a movement assessment webinar, so don't worry about that part, but what are the resources people can um, access to learn more about this? Um, there is like the research on, um, on fascia, on equine fascia. Um, if you go on Google, there is um, one group is called Fascia Guide, and there you're also going to find the research from the University of Denmark that did that on the horses. Um, uh, there is a body worker in America who did a very, very nice book on the fascia lines with all the muscles. Becky might be able to tell you the name. I'm so sorry, I forgot the name of oh, the lady. Oh, um, Equinology um, of the Brain. Um, uh, uh, is that, uh, maybe Becky knows. Um, I think I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paula oh, okay. Eckelberger. Yeah, she has a beautiful book with very, very nice um, pictures. So you actually see the, the real muscles. That is really, really nice. Um, so you can see how the connections are and which muscles are important and how they do that. And otherwise, I, I do not often recommend Dr. Google, but there is a lot of Dr. Google, <laughs> Dr. Google land out about fascia. And if you want to go on to the newest research, um, Yogi put in his um, work, the equine documentalist. If you go and have a look at his website, um, there he has quite a few of those um, 
um, of those research papers, like under his articles, he always puts the research paper on. So you can go and read the actual papers about um, which one we're looking at, at stifle pain or, or back pain and how that is connected and stuff like that. So um, yes, there is a lot of information out there. We just, it just needs to be in the, out at the public and not just at some of the scientists. So maybe tables. I need to have Yogi and, and Pamela on as guests because um, I've been in touch with Pamela. I didn't realize um, her background. There's a lot of people that have come in, come to my website and come into my world, but I don't necessarily know their day job. Um, so, but I, I think I'll get in touch with both of them and see if they'll come on and do a webinar with me. So um, Martina, can you just talk a little more since we don't have the slides, talk a little more about what you've seen using Surefoot pads and how you think that is influencing the fascia? Yes, um, like I said, there is um, the most important thing is releasing the tension. And what your pads allow is the body to release that tension on the fascia system. And we've seen or research has shown that fascia reacts faster than the neural system. So if fascia relaxes and we have less tension on there, the input or the wrong input that we got, it's called the bastardized input on the neural system, goes back to normal. That's why the movement changes so quickly. If we have um, release on, on fascia, um, we know there is a release of um, endorphins and uh, endorphins are making us feel good. That's also what you have when you go for jogging and you come back and you know, that's the same. Um, acupuncture is actually the same. It also releases fascia tension. And from acupuncture, it's very well studied that you have a release of endorphin, of serotonin, and um, also stem cells if you um, activate them long enough. So this is all done over that because the body gets the possibility to heal itself. And that's why they react so well. And if you have a release of endorphin, you are going to be high. And this is the face that a lot of those horses do. They're like, mm. <laughs> it's like they smoke the very good joint. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that does the same to your brain. Yeah. I, I, um, and it needs a little time to adapt. And that's why you also see a changed movement pattern afterwards that stays. So, um, so uh, I often get the question about duration standing on the pads, and I have seen anywhere from not even standing on them to standing on them for a number of minutes. But um, in some cases, I've seen changes in fascia like in seconds. So what do we need to keep in mind when we're looking at the length of time a horse is standing on pads? It depends on the horse. And like you, you've said, sometimes it's just um, once they're used to the pads, just being next to them gives them the feeling because horses are smart, horse remember. And if it was a good situation or a good person, they will remember and they will act differently for them. It gives them security. Um, as for the time and for the, the speed it acts, is it helps the body to balance out and works like a, a, a sponge absorbing what, what shouldn't be there or help them to balance it out. Fascia is, like I said, three times faster than your neural system. If it's just on there for one or two seconds, that's already great. But he's going to feel the tension releasing. He's going to feel the change in his body. And 
this is why the horses stand on longer, longer and longer. I think they can, like, like people, some of them can't stand on too long and you need to get them off. Right. That's like, like some person also, um, one glass of wine is nice or two <laughs> glasses are good, but if you had three bottles, it's, it's not really beneficial. It can, that's when you have muscle ache afterwards the next day because right. it is a lot of changes that occur to the neuronal system because you get a lot of neural input from the balancing, from the swaying and all that. I mean, a lot of that happens in the body. So you get a lot of neuronal input in addition to the fascia input to the brain because we still don't know what 80% of the brain are doing. And I think work with fascia is input from fascia is part of what the brain is also working with. Um, but that's just me and that needs to be... Um, that's okay. So, you know, you talked about the nociceptors and the, the fascia changing into pain reception instead of um, fascial, you know, proprioception. So, yeah. you know, not uncommon to see horses that'll step on a pad and step off and kind of be like, like, like what happened? You know, you can see this huge yes. question mark and they're, they're yeah. startled by it at first because it's, it's ask, in my opinion, it's asking such a huge question of who, what they feel and how, how they've habituated. Yes, and the other thing is their anatomy of the skin is different than ours. Horse skin is half as thick as ours, but has double the amount of nerve endings in there. So if we have tension in the skin or in the fascia, horses have way more body awareness than we do. That's why it acts more stronger and quicker on them because they're just better at it as, as us. And this is why they feel it stronger and while it needs shorter. Humans often need more therapy for the same thing as a horse does because they're just, their body's better at healing and at recognizing when something's wrong. So, just because of their anatomy. Right, so, um... Oh, I have another question, but in that shift, so how long does it take the fascia to shift back from nociception to proprioception? Do we know? It can be done in seconds. Oh, okay. So because if, if it's just a tension that needed to be released, say that again, please. I didn't hear that. Um, some of the changes that I've seen, I've seen horses in as little as, you know, 15 minutes completely change and hold change. And other horses, yes. it, you know, yeah. need to see the pads for several weeks, others several months, others for years before we see changes, what I call stick. So there's something going on in terms of the remodeling of the whole system, uh -huh. maybe even remodeling of the bone as the forces change. I think you, it, it depends on the problem that the horse has. Let's say you have a mental problem, like, stress related like um sybil pointed out before that you can have stress related tension in your fascia um if you are on the pad and it's just stress related and you can release the stress by releasing endorphins that will be a very quick change within 15 minutes you might have a different horse if you have structural changes in there like, for example, some densifications because they need some manual therapy or they need much longer, much more stretching, much more swaying to till they're fully released. It will take longer. If you have real scar tissue uh, and trauma in the body, shortages or anything, um, or a continuous um, stand that is not balanced, 
it always works against your work. So they need repeatedly the parts. So um, the swaying, this is a question that I get so frequently. People say, what's happening when the horse is swaying? So in your opinion, what do you think's going on? It's releasing tension. It's, it's when you, it's, it's, it can be physical tension, but it can re really, like we, we've seen, we have that big transecurity net of the body. And when you do that, we often do also stretch and do this and that to feel better. And then when the horse is down on the pad, they actually have the possibility to do so because the pads are softer and they're giving and allowing them to do so. Well, ground is not. Right. It's not spongy. You, your pads, is, and that's, I think, why the, the purple ones and the blue ones have such a big impact because with those ones, you see the most swaying. Um, actually, Usually, it depends. Because, like, I mean, I've seen some horses sway on a hard pad with one foot right from the beginning and other horses, you know, it, I mean, it's so variable. Um, but, you know, a lot of horses can't deal with the medium and the soft pads in the beginning. They need a harder surface to start un unwinding, if you will. Yes, yes. And I always tell people, you know, you always start harder and move softer because if you go soft too soon, some of these horses can't handle that much that fast. Um, we have I think Becky and Sybil put two, two valuable points there. Perhaps you can read them out. Okay, so um, let's see. Sybil said, totally agree about time on the pads and frequency of use is related to psychological and physical condition of the horse. And then she added, I would add that horses with chronic conditions might never change with the use of pads until the condition is diagnosed absolutely and treated. Yeah. And, I, and I always say that often the pads will decompensate a horse so we can find the problem. They won't cause a problem, but they can decompensate a horse and suddenly it looks lame. Yes. Um, and thinking, for example, horses with hind end chronic suspensory uh, desmitis. Yeah. And I've, I've seen horses decompensate and, but um, they're such masters at compensation that when they decompensate, it's actually a good thing because then we can discover where the problem is because yeah. they're not doing that compensation. And, and then suspensory hind and dysmitis is often a shoeing problem. They often have a negative palmer angle or it's a footing problem. They have a too soft ground. They get worked on too frequently and too long. There's quite a lot of studies out about that, especially in the hind end. Yeah. It's either work and surface related or chewing related. Yep. So, you know, when I talk to people and I do workshops, I always talk about a wheel and that everything has to be in balance. Teeth, yep. teeth back, saddle, rider, health. Teeth. It, teeth. Teeth. That's what the first one I said, right? And I have to get a good dentist to come on my webinars and talk to us about teeth. I'm working on somebody right now, but teeth, feet, back, saddle, rider, and health. And health in this country, you know, Lyme disease and that sort of thing. And it, if if it's a little out of balance, the pads may bring it back. But if it's way out of balance, the pads are only going to be palliative. They're only going to make the horse feel better for a little bit of time until you actually address the underlying problem. And that's a really good point. Um, someone else has asked, what are your thoughts yeah. about doing fascial release while the horse are standing on the pads? Um, I wouldn't do it while they're on because you might cause some system overload because the fascia is already releasing why the horses stand on the pad. What you could do, you could work on, on some of the problems, walk them a little bit, and then let them stand on the pad. But I would not combine those two too much because 
we also get input in the nervous system when we do that. The nervous system can just take so much. If it gets too much uh, information, that's what then it will cause transneuronal degeneration, TND. Um, this can also happen to horses that stand on too long on the paths. You see that um, the horses, they get very, very sleepy. They change their breathing, uh, breathing pattern um, to a higher frequency instead of a lower frequency. And they also, if it's very bad, they can even get sweat patterns. Um, their heart rate goes up instead down, but they still look very, very sleepy. Also their pupils start to dilate. What you see when they have open... Um, Can you define this again? What's the name of it? Trends. Trans, wait, I'll, I'll try to tape. Where is the, uh, no, where do I have to tape it? Sorry, bear with me. That's okay. If you go to the chat, you can put it Trans. in. Here, I can type wait. it. T-R-A-N-S. And then neuronal, nu neuronal mm. for nerves. Neuronal, N-E-U-R, neuron. Degeneration. Oh. So the nerves are actually have already degenerated or are degenerating? Are degenerated due to the too much input. Because what happens when you when you have a lot of nerves firing, and that is when they're standing on the path, because like everybody's screaming what's happening in the body, um, all this gets up into you're welcome, into the um <laughs> into the cerebrum, and you're overriding that that's too much input. And when you have so much input, you have little um, um, potassium channels that are responsible to giving that over. And they kind of burst because of so much input that is there. And then the nerve cell is dying. So you actually cause that of brain cells when you do too much too long. Yeah, and That's I also the same with massage or anything. That's why it's so important. If your heart rate goes up, if your breathing rate goes up, if the horses get very, very sleepy, that you hardly can get them out. As long as they're getting deeper and relaxer, that's fine. But if they get very sleepy with the breathing rate going up or the pupils start to dilate, this is when they have to get off the paths and they need to walk, even if they don't want to, because the brain needs to go back from processing into just reacting. Right. So you need to get them out of that, not more... Uh, information in it needs to give output to function just these three things are very very important otherwise if they're relaxing and going deeper and breathing slower and everything goes down that is fine so um if uh, very very often you can see the jugular blood flow because the neck relaxes so much would we yeah. see a change in the pulse rate with a horse that's yes in the, the pulse rate goes up if your pulse rate goes up your brain goes into uh, degeneration. Okay, great. Because that's one of the things that's really easy to see um, is that muscular yes. blood flow. And so if you start to, what I typically notice is it's slowing down and you can literally yeah. count If it. it's slowing down, it's fine for the horse. Then it's still in regeneration status. If it is too much, then the sympathicotonus gets up. That means this is the one... Um, our big brain, cerebrum, 
is suppressing sympathetic tonus continuously. That's its major work, what it does. Because sympathicus, they would fight, they would run, and they would react on anything. That's when horses are not thinking, just reacting. This is a high sympathetic tonus. And this is the, how do you say, reptile part of our brain. Right. It wants to eat and it wants to run and fight. Um, so if, um, if there is too much going on in the cerebrum that controls that part, it can't suppress the sympathicus anymore. And this is when we see um, signs, outward signs of a high sympathicotonus. This is, like I said, elevated heart rate or the jugular that you see. This is elevated breathing. This is the pupils get white because if you need to run and fight, you need to see where the people are coming from. So if you see that, this is a no-go, this is a stop sign, then off the paths. Awesome. Also I have when one, you do massage one more question or for you about that. Um, it is not unusual with some horses when you put their, their foot on a pad, and I'm just talking about in the beginning and just one foot, that you'll see a, 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 either a rapid breathing or a nostril flare. Is that... Um, is that just the horse kind of experiencing something different? And yes. Okay. So that is yes. not the you same. Never get, you never get a transneuronal overload in a healthy horse for just a few seconds. Okay. Horses Great. that are very prone to that are perhaps like, you know, older horses. Yes. Oh, yeah. Becky put on a really good stop uh, point to what's also a sign is when they start to defecate frequently or urinate frequently um you often see that they kind of like get diarrhea um kind of very very cow pat like um poop this is also a sign of a too high um too high sympathicotonus right so that's another stop sign when it goes into that direction yeah. uh, what were we talking about sorry it's okay. Um, you, just the difference in breathing patterns. This has been fabulous because, um, you know, I often have people come back and tell me, well, I let my horse stand a really long time. And I know that shorter, you don't need a long duration to make a change. No. Um, and that's the thing that it's hard to get people to understand that you don't, it's not about the quantity of time. It's about the potency of the input. And that in, I've literally seen horses where they just touched the pad and made a huge change because the input was so potent, but it's not, duration yeah. is not one of the primary things to be concerned about as much as paying attention to what's going on with what little input you put in. Yeah, it's, it, it all depends on the situation the animal is in. Um, so you can't say, there's no answer fit at all because right. everyone is unique. Right. And that's one of the cool stuff, Dr. Muller, just the wonderful thing is that when horses start to recognize pad colors and decide the ones they like and the ones they won't step on. And this is so true that once the horses realize they have a voice and a choice, they start to show us exactly what they want, which pad, which foot, which density, how long. And to me, that that's one of the most exciting things about Surefoot is that the horses become in charge of their own process. And I always say that they know their body better than we do. And our job is to become the observers and facilitators of their process because we're asking them and they're finally realizing we're asking instead of telling and yelling. We're just saying, what would you like? So I think that's, that is yeah. for me one of the key tenets of Surefoot. 
And they know their body so well. Once they understand that we work together with them, and that's the nice thing about the sure foot, they can't say no. Yes. Yep. And, and it's really easy to say no yep. for them. And once they realize they can actually say what they would like, and they work so nicely together with you. They're very expressive. Yes, and it is challenging to help owners understand this. And I think that that's one of the things um, as practitioners, Lisa's a practitioner, um, that just the more we can help them start to get that idea and then become playful with it, that there isn't a right and wrong, that this really is an investigation and a, and a question and answer session with your horse, that um, it, it, I think it'll start changing the way people actually look at their horses, which is one of... Uh, the things that I see as a larger change that Surefoot can bring is that people start to ask rather than demand and to investigate rather than um, tell. Um, and I just yes. think that that's so important. Um, Loretta, I know you had your hand up. Do you have a, if you can type a question, if you still have your question in the chat, that'd be great. Because I think at this point, everybody's brains are so full. This has been such an amazing, no, it was an accident. Great, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Neerdhart, um, this has been so fabulous. This has just been an amazing webinar. And I'm I so sorry about the. It doesn't you matter. You see, technically, me, that's not good. <laughs> yep, it's okay. We got there and we got it done, and it's been recorded, which is great. And I'll be putting it up on my YouTube channel. So, for all of my webinars, they're available free on my YouTube channel, Surefoot Equine. Please subscribe. I, I now have a whole other list of guests to ask to join me on this show. Um, this has just been a continuing education. And one of my um, participants, one of my guests, uh, Laura Plunkett, it'll be with me this Thursday. She started to realize that I'm actually putting together all these little pieces of a puzzle and building a whole. And what I told her is that's classic Feldenkrais, that you differentiate the parts and then you integrate it back into a whole. And so I'm hoping that you're starting to see that that's where we're going. And I think we just lost Martina. <laughs> so oh, she's back. Um, nope. And so that each of these webinars is another piece of the puzzle to help you see how all of this goes together. Um, the other thing I just wanna mention is that this week is Giving Tuesday worldwide, and I have um, an offer on my uh, Surefoot Equine Facebook page. Please nominate your favorite nonprofit, either rescue, retirement, or therapeutic riding center, because we're gonna give away three half physio pads, one to each of three different um, therapy centers. And so please go and nominate your favorite um, organization. We really want to be able to help more horses with Surefoot. Perfect. Um, Thank you, everyone, for your patience and bearing. Kelly Lee. All right. So thank you. And until next time, tomorrow, um, we have Dr. Joyce Harmon. This is Vet Week. And so um, that's at 730 tomorrow night. So thank you all for joining us and hanging in there through the technical difficulties. And um, always remember to enjoy the ride. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Thank you so much.